Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to four o'clock and thanks to Chris and it's time for Tuesday Home Time and I'm here till six o'clock this afternoon. Today, a Gene Ethics Network update with Bob, Bob Phelps. We've been talking about Steve Mast's battle for compensation after his farm was inundated with GMOs, also cloned animals for the table. That's something to look forward to. But if the government department um, has its way, you won't even know. Demonstrations in Haiti for free and fair elections and justice for all. I'll be speaking with Nicole Phillips, who is a US attorney. Understanding the political situation in Malaysia by way of the past. Peter Boyle was born in Malaysia and he's lived here for quite a number of years now, but he'll be looking at that past and to understand what is facing the people in Malaysia today. And a visit to Okinawa to take part in anti-US basis demonstrations. I'll be speaking to Buddy Bell, who went there. He's co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and um, he was there just, I think it was last October. And Ronnie Kareni is leaving 3CR. Ronnie has been the spoken word producer since I think it was about January, February 2014. He's off to study at Canberra University, so this will be a bit of a swan song for Ronnie. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, enjoy it because he won't be here next week. He's off to the beach, so here he is for today. A week, Jane Lisner, when our caring business class government is bringing balance and objectivity to public appointments. For instance, one of the sundry chambers of profit spokespeople, Kate Can't Smell the Money, has resigned from her chamber of profits job after Malcolm and the caring business class party lot appointed her to the new post of small business ombudsman, a direct small business link to government lauded by the caring business class. And I thought, we can assume soon they'll appoint a prominent worker spokesman. Person. Perhaps John Setka from the CFMEU as workers' ombudsman to bring workers' issues to the government, give them a direct line, because as we said, their recent appointments have shown just how open minded and balanced they are. Former Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Philip Rubbish, for instance, easing his bum off the plush seat after 43 years, perhaps jebbied off, to take his not insignificant public pension to Geneva to become our international spokesperson on human rights. Philip Rubbish, a man whose own daughter denounced his cruelty as he packed the despots off to the concentration camps and ordered more and more razor wire. He'll certainly do our already highly regarded reputation on human rights the world of good. And a great practitioner of believer in human rights, our very favourite law firm Free Hails the Wealthy, is so devoted to making Trublowasi a better place, it keeps going beyond the normal call of to make this a better place. 
unless you're an evil, lazy, avaricious worker. More so if you're also in an evil, anti troublewazi terrorist union. Well, you don't deserve any human rights. We've all been thrilled that former Freehales the Wealthy's partner, Michaela Kosh the Workers, is now Minister for Koshing the Workers. And this week, as Minister for Women, she announced the new Sex Discrimination Commissioner after showing just how highly the government regarded the position. It had only been vacant for five months. Well, there wouldn't be too much sex discrimination in five months in this country, particularly with that lot looking after it. Yes, the former Free Hales the Wealthy partner announced the new commissioner is, you guessed it, another former Free Hales the Wealthy partner. Let's make them the government, although we probably don't have to. They, they already are de facto. Now, we might think they're stacking the deck in a lot of these appointments, but let me assure us, no. Different if a Socialist Party government appointed a current or former evil union official to the role, because that would be biased, and the caring business class party and the lapdog, or sorry, watchdog media would soon let it know just how biased and unreasonable and unsuitable that would be. But the media assure us this ex-freehales the wealthy's partner's appointment is ideal, quote, a woman with an outstanding record. Actually, we should be relieved all we ended up with was a freehouse, the wealthy ex-partner. Earlier in the week, there was speculation a former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the boss's big office supremo, Peter with an A, crushed them, was being considered for sex discrimination commissioner. On one level, it made sense. Her history in Tiny's office shows she knows all there is to know about discrimination, and she could have sat in her new office happily counting the huge redundancy payment she received thanks to the caring business class party's backstabbing bloodletting. And backstabbing and bloodletting is something she also knows plenty about. Redundancy for Tiny's staff estimated at $3.5 million. Well, as one of their predecessors said, life wasn't meant to be easy. Although even they may have tweaked that appointing the old Peter might have created a, a bit of a backlash. Back on Philip Rubbish's former role with concentration camps, razor wire and dispatching of flimsy vessels, Malcolm said if all these kids and their parents were not sent back to the torture, all 267 of them, Trouble was his asylum seeker desperate's policy, he really said this, listen, no embellishment, risks a colossal humanitarian failure. Uh, if we don't torture 267 people, we risk a colossal humanitarian failure. Has he looked up the meaning of humanitarian lately? I, I don't think it mentions torture as a key component. And given Lord Rupert of Wapping just cannot forgive the people of Victoria for stuffing up democracy and getting the last state election wrong, when state big supremo Who Who offered to accept the refugees, Lord Rupert's Wapping sin accused Who Who of attempting to pull apart the border policy. So torture remains the humanitarian response. Who Who accepting the refugees threatens a colossal humanitarian failure, pulling apart the border policy. And we can send babies back to torture, but balance it by taking the world's uranium waste, showing we care about their health. I've said it before, it's the spare material. How can satire compete?
As with the serious contender for the Republican nomination over in Lord Rupert's home country, the US of the UN of the US of the world, Marco Rubbisho, who accused the current lot of gutting the train killer forces and vowed to rebuild the train killer forces, heaps and heaps of public don't tax the rich money handed to the merchants of death, who as thanks for their contribution to world peace don't need to pay any taxes on the taxes they're being handed. China is building up their own military. Well, we could understand how shocked the US would be at a country building up its own military. They're taking over the most important shipping lane in the world, Marco warned, and he would work more closely with True Blue Aussie to declare non-war on China. We're not going to let China take over parts of the South China Sea, he screamed. After all, everybody knows the South South China Sea is USR property. Well, well, the whole world is USR property. But where does this the how can satire compete bit come in? Well, same day as he said that, a Republican Party commentator said the party saw him as the moderate candidate. <laughs> the mind boggles at what the hardliners, the non-moderates might get up to. Well, would boggle if it wasn't for the fact that the respective policies in US of politics are vote and the name of the candidate. That's it. And the nearest thing to a real policy is screaming she or he will make America great again and God bless it. They're all so brilliant, aren't they? One of the non-moderates, Ted Crazy, had to withdraw this ad. Ordinary, everyday US others talking about how Ted would make America great again and God bless America because Ted just loves the dear baby Jesus. Had to withdraw when they discovered the woman in the ad was a porn star. Well, she's an actor of sorts, so I'm not sure what the problem was, but apparently Ted didn't see it fitting in with the Dear baby Jesus bit. What's she think about Mary Magdalene then? This from a lot who want to run the whole country, well, more, the whole world. The bloke who's gutted, sorry, the guy who's gutted train killing Barack for change, 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 who hasn't changed too much. A lot of joy uh, is talking of joining Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country in France in yet another coalition of the killing to do a little bit of trade killing in Libya, where their overthrow of the Qaddafi government has proved such a big hit. Uh, Yes, what's caused Libya to become a a non-functioning state? Terrorism. These terrorists threw out the government. But let's not talk about those non-functioning, fear-ridden states where the US Arb and its coalition of the killing friends like True Blue Aussie were forced to get rid of anti-liberty, freedom and democracy governments and look at the success stories. Now, we know there's been a lots, lots of catty, envious, perhaps, comments about this award our Minister for Fossils, Greg Hort the Greedies, won as the world's greatest minister. Comments like, what's that say about the rest of them? Well, we should be celebrating so proud of him that such an honour could be awarded to a true blue Aussie, given the award was made at some so-called parliamentary event hosted by that epitome of parliamentary democracy, of liberty, freedom and democracy, the Arab Emirates. Just ask the world leader in liberty, freedom and democracy, the US Arb, and it will tell us the Emirates Sheikhs and the US Arb's very, very, very close friend, the Saudi royal entourage, hangers on, are two of the greatest supporters of liberty, freedom and democracy in the region. 
why the Saudis run the UN OBS Human Rights Committee on behalf of the US OBS, sitting in the chair brandishing the executioner's sword. Not that the death penalty is used capriciously or ubiquitously, it's reserved for serious anti-social crimes, threats to public order like, say, a woman driving a car or a Filipino slave reacting to sexual assault and imprisonment. So our new human rights hero, Philip Rubbish, should enjoy exchanging a few human rights notes with the, with the Saudis, piss themselves laughing about treating those fleeing the invasions and non-functioning governments to fun, fun, fun holiday camps, camps on Pacific and Indian Ocean Islands. And finally, Brazil has brought the train killers in to fight the Zika virus. Now, I've no idea what the train killers can do about that, but I suspect it's psychological to take people's minds off one problem and address another, because obviously they'd see the train killers as more dangerous than the mosquitoes. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And as I said, we wish him a happy Holiday, he's only got one week, but still, he'll make the most of it down by the seaside. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, where the time now is 11 minutes past 4 o'clock. All your promises have been broken just like right I'm Jermaine Greer, and you're listening to 3CR, Treaty Now. And to our monthly focus on GMOs or genetically modified organisms with the director of the Gene Ethics Network, Bob Phelps. Bob, this case we're going to discuss goes back nearly six years and has caused not only environmental damage but financial damage. And I'm referring to two neighbouring farms in Western Australia and the decertification of Steve Marsh's property due to non-organic canola seeds blowing onto his property. It would appear that Steve Marsh has exhausted all avenues to achieve justice for his claim of damage. Is that an accurate summary? Well, yes, I think the most terrible thing is that it's divided the local community, you know. It's um, put people at odds with each other over uh, an incident that really could have been avoided, that uh, Michael Baxter should have been much more responsible in uh, not growing the canola right near the fence where um, it adjoined Steve Marsh's property in the first place. But he seems to have been militantly pushing forward with GM canola for the last six years. Since the original contamination, he's grown it several times on his uh, property. And although it hasn't led to the kind of contamination that happened in 2010, it has been confrontational and it's continued this battle not only in the courts but out there in the community as well. And inevitability about the fact that it would contaminate? Well, yes, I think so. Uh, The canola crop that Baxter grew in 2010 was the first time he'd grown GM canola. He grew it right at the boundary. And he also windrowed it, which he hadn't done before. That is, he cut the crop and then laid it down on the ground to dry. Of course, it was pretty inevitable that as it dried and there was a storm, that it would be blown onto uh, Steve Marsh's property and that it would spread around literally millions of canola seeds. The contamination occurred. It was then up to Steve to advise his uh, organic certifiers that this event had occurred. In her judgment at the appeal in Western Australia, Justice McClure 
took this point up. In fact, her view was that Steve Marsh's case should have succeeded and that he should have been awarded compensation. Unfortunately, the two other judges didn't agree with her. How much GM canola is being grown in that area? Well, the figures are a bit hard to, to discern, really. The owner of the canola, which is Monsanto Company, because, of course, they have a patent on it and don't allow the farmers to save seeds, claims that last year some 330,000 hectares was grown. And we're not sure exactly how much that is of the crop, but probably about 20% of the West Australian canola crop. In 2010, of course, it was much smaller because it was the first year it was grown. I think the industry wanted to make the point that we're here, we've arrived, and we're just going to do what we like. And they've supported Baxter right through? We didn't know that, but uh, in fact, the appeal court under Carmel McClure again uh, required Baxter to say if he was getting any financial support from Monsanto, which owns the canola, and also from the Pastoralists and Graziers Association, who have been the most militant group in Western Australia, calling for a change in the law so that the, uh, there can be no questioning of future GM crops. And it turned out that the PGA had raised a little bit of money, uh, none of which they had put towards Baxter's case. However, Monsanto had indemnified him for his costs, so really he was running no risks at all of losing his farm during the case, and I think he must have been quite relaxed about it throughout knowing that Monsanto was behind him. So it wasn't until last year that it was publicly known, in fact, that Monsanto was giving him that kind of assurance. And I think it shows that, uh, in a sense, the whole thing was a set-up. How much of Steve Marsh's property was contaminated? Oh, about 70% of the property was uh, decertified by NASA, which is the organic certifying organisation, as a result of the canola going onto his place. And how can he get that back? Well, in fact, uh, he was given his organic certification back at the end of 2014. Of course, that didn't wipe out the losses that he had sustained in the four years prior to that. What's, what has turned out is that uh, the certifiers were um, slammed by the industry for having zero tolerance for any GM canola in organic production systems and for decertifying him. However, just in the last several months, we've, we've found out that, in fact, the bulk handler in Western Australia, Cooperative Bulk Handler, that is the main grain trader buying canola from the farmers, also has zero tolerance for GM because there are substantial premiums for genuinely GM-free canola, particularly for export to Europe. So last week, the premium for GM-free canola uh, was $60 per tonne for GM-free uh, over and above the GM varieties. It's a huge advantage, and some 90% of the crop is sent to Europe. Around about 90% of the farmers also remain GM-free. So, of course, we're in this bind that uh, they are still vulnerable to being contaminated and losing that substantial premium. What the co cooperative bulk handlers do is... If there's any, absolutely any suggestion of contamination at all, for instance, if a truck comes in with two bins of canola on it, one GM and one non-GM, then they both go into the GM bin just in case there's any cross-contamination. 
and all of the farmers wear the loss of the uh, premium uh, on the bin that's the GM-free canola. It's not a fair situation, but that's how they're running a very tight zero tolerance for any GM canola in the GM-free supply chain in order that the European market be protected. And so it's really a double standard that uh, the industry has continued to argue that the organic standard should change and that they should allow the low-level presence of GM in their uh, organic canola and other supply chains. What needs to be done to stop a case like this going through all these courts in the future? Well, I think they need to start a fund. Every kilo of GM canola seed that's sold should, in our view, attract a levy of a dollar. Now, a dollar doesn't sound like much, but uh, when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of kilos of GM canola seed being sold each year, then uh, there would be sufficient in such a fund to recompense GM-free farmers for any contamination events that occur. So that should be the first thing that happens. And secondly, of course, we need to take practical steps to ensure that GM contamination doesn't occur. So a farmer protection fund should be set up by the state government and then there would be resources available to ensure that farmers could be paid out for any contamination events that occur. It's just really unfortunate that when the whole genetic engineering legal system was set up in 2001 that all of the governments, state governments and the federal government who were consulting about it then, decided that uh, the courts and the common law would be the way to settle claims of damages for GM contamination. They obviously haven't worked and we are now again strenuously arguing that the Farm Protection Funds must be established in order that uh, the vast majority of Australia's 134,000 farmers who remain GM-free are going to be protected from this kind of contamination. Has there been a similar case to Steve Marsh in North America? Well, there was the Percy Schmeisser case. Yes, the Canadian farmer who was contaminated, gosh, in the 1990s, I think it was now, who battled it out with Monsanto for years to try to get compensated for the contamination, and, of course, they were suing him. It went to and fro, to and fro, and um, Percy was uh, finally convicted of having retained the seed, of broken the company's patent. However, in the end, he never paid and um, he was awarded an amount to pay for the clean-up of his land. So it was really pretty much a stalemate in the end and he received support from around the world and it really brought the GM debate to a real focus, which has been tremendously important worldwide. And uh, we're still in the position today of just 28 countries growing any GM crops at all. Six of those grow 90% of all the GM crops. 160 countries and many regions around the world as well uh, remain totally GM-free. So this is not an industry that's going anywhere, really, probably with the exception of cotton, which uh, has been um, taken up in India, for instance, and there what they've found now is that it's collapsing that farmers are in real trouble as a result of having gone with the gm varieties and we see for instance that in africa in burkina faso the quality of the cotton which was very highly prized previously before they embraced the gm varieties about five years ago their quality has gone way way down their 
cotton industry is in a shambles and they've now made a decision to go back to non-GM varieties over the next couple of years in order to try to restore the reputation for quality of their product and to restore their markets. I believe, though, that there must be a lot of pressure on farmers around the world to put in GM crops from these huge multinationals who, who control the world's GM everything from seeds right through. Well, yes, that is the situation that's becoming more so. We saw last year that uh, DuPont and Dow, two of the biggest companies, got together to form DuPont Dow, as it's now known. Chem China has just agreed to buy the Swiss company Syngenta. If that amalgamation occurs, which it looks very likely that it will, it will then be the biggest chemical and GM company in the world based in China, although they're saying that they're going to leave Syngenta operating in Switzerland. Really, we've now only got five companies. If that happens, we'll have five giant GM and agrochemical companies operating worldwide. Monsanto will remain the biggest GM company for the time being, and there are new technologies coming along which might help this rather foolish industry to survive a bit longer. But global food supply is going to be literally in the hands of a handful of mega companies that's not in the public interest, means... uh, giving them an enormous amount of power right from the seed to our spoon uh, over the food industry. And farmers are going to continue to be squeezed. Shoppers will continue to be squeezed and will not be advised through labelling. Things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership are going to make it much more difficult for governments to regulate, even if they wanted to. I just think it's uh, a situation that we really, really need to uh, start working against. So we've got groups emerging like the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, Sustain, and a number of other networks around the world, including La Via Campesina, the um, organisation of of farmers, that are saying, well, just hang on a minute, just stop right there. The autonomy of farmers needs to be maintained and the rights of shoppers to know what's in the food supply needs to be maintained as well. The other issue, Bob, is Dolly the sheep, and that was... Back in 1996, the first female domestic sheep, the first mammal to be cloned from an adult somatic cell. Since then, other sheep, cats, rabbits, hares, donkeys, the list goes on, have been cloned. But now Food Standards Australia New Zealand, without public consultation, has deemed that meat from cloned animals will not be regulated or labelled What are the concerns of the Genethics Network of cloning animals for food? Well, the United States National Institutes of Health are very clear that uh, most cloned animals are either stillborn, deformed or chronically ill with major brain, heart, liver dysfunction. They're also immune compromised. Really, to summarise, they say most cloned animal embryos cannot develop into healthy individuals. Now, when we've talked to Food Stands Australia and New Zealand about that, they've said, well, animal welfare and health is not really our department. If you want to talk about that, you better talk to the state governments about it. That's not good enough. Uh, Food Standards has to take the view that if an animal's ill, then its products are not really fit for the human food supply. But that isn't their view at the moment, and we're certainly going to be um, taking them on over it. Uh, They haven't got any substantial evidence 
that cloned animal meat is safe. The only study that they can point to, and you'd hardly call it a study, was from, uh, from 2003. A researcher in Adelaide, Bob Seamark, was running a company there that was trying to clone pigs, and he wrote a report in support of the work that he was doing. It's outdated information at best. It was written by somebody who had a vested interest in advancing animal cloning. As I said, the National Institutes of Health in the USA have made it very, very clear cloned animals and their products are not safe. Where are these animals being cloned? At the moment in Australia, um, a couple of farmers have got IVF experts doing the cloning for them. So instead of cloning or fiddling with human embryos, um, they've simply transferred their work into the animal area. They take a, a cow egg in this case and they empty out the contents, the nucleus, and put the nucleus from an ad adult animal into the egg cell. They create an embryo and then they implant that into a surrogate in the hope that that uh, egg will grow into, a, um, into an animal and be born. It has come some way since Dolly, for instance. Dolly was actually one of 277 embryos that were implanted and only one of them was viable. But of course, Dolly was also um, euthanized quite young. And the reason for that appears to be that the other thing that happens is that when you transfer the nucleus from the adult eggs, egg cell, the somatic cell into the egg, the age of that genetic material is the actual age of the adult animal, not of the embryo. And so when the new animal is born, it's prematurely aged. And that's why these animals are also short-lived. Now, the farmers can say, I suppose, well, it doesn't really matter because we're going to slaughter these animals and sell their products uh, before they become so aged that they are not viable. But I think the evidence, at least from the USA, is that there are many, many health issues and therefore issues about the quality and the healthiness of the products from those animals. And I just can't really, for the life of me, see why uh, the farmers here would want to do it. They're already using artificial insemination very extensively to um, generate their so-called elite animals. They're opening a can of worms for themselves and for the community. There is a, already an indication of how the community will feel about this and probably says why food standards wouldn't want meat from cloned animals labelled, and that is the annual Swinburne University Survey of Technologies. So the Australian public has been asked to um, give its view about um, the introduction of different technologies into society. And cloned meat comes last, dead last, behind nuclear power stations. So you can get some sense of how popular this would be with shoppers and uh, speaks to this issue of whether or not new foods which come into the food supply should be labelled or not. And we argue absolutely strenuously that they are novel, they have no history of safe use, they must be labelled, but Food Stamps Australia New Zealand at this point does not agree and we will certainly be having words, further words with them about firstly reviewing the evidence, not operating on assumptions and secondly ensuring that the public knows fully what's being done to our food supply through labelling. What's happening overseas with cloned animals? Well, not very much at all. The whole thing has been really a failure. And I think that's the other thing that's pushing this ahead is that uh, 
Of course, Australia fancies itself now as the innovative country, wants to be in the vanguard, wants to try everything out. We're just shooting ourselves in the foot, really, and I just can't see why they're insisting on doing it. But uh, there you go. Some individual farmers have, are wanting to test this out. They have the backing of Australian scientists, and they're saying that the uh, meat from cloned animals may come into the food supply within a couple of years. I'd imagine, though, there'd be lots of scientists who wouldn't be supporting it. Well, I suppose so, but of course, as usual, it's very hard to get ethical scientists to actually speak up because, as usual, their jobs are on the line. Scientists in the past who have spoken out about genetically manipulated and other uh, novel foods have um, reaped a whirlwind of vilification, job loss, the ending of their careers and so on. They're very unforgiving, the scientific community, when it comes to so-called consensus of safety and the efficacy of new products. Uh, And, of course, the companies that stand to gain enormously out of these things are the ones that uh, really push the agenda of silencing any expert um, critique or dissidence. Well, it shouldn't be a job for NGOs, should it? Well, we hope that the governments, for a change, would do their job, but... uh, We know that uh, politicians and bureaucrats are not leaders, they're followers, and they follow the money trail. So, uh, yes, community groups do have to soldier on and uh, keep raising the issues, and we do that, as we've been doing for the last 30 years. Good eye, Bob. Thank you very much, Jan. And that was Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network. Look them up, have a look on the web. Have a look on their Facebook page. Get involved. It's 3CR and it's 4.32. Welcome. 3CR Breakfast Radio meets the people. So come along to 3CR Sustainable Breakfast Series. Broadcast live from Friends of the Earth Food Co-op. Join us for breakfast tasties at Friends of the Earth 312 Smith Street, Collingwood, or tune in to 3CR to hear what people are doing in the area of sustainability. From Tuesday, March the 15th to Friday, March the 18th. Starts at 7am, goes through to 8.30am. Come down, watch a live show. Every show will have a musician, and it's a fantastic initiative by 3CR and Friends of the Earth. Supported by Yarra Council. In January, thousands of people took to the streets of Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti, to protest against electoral fraud. In all, 68 grassroots groups issued an urgent call for solidarity with their struggle for fair and free elections, dignity and justice. In recent election, there have been evidence of widespread corruption and a lack of transparency. Last Friday, I spoke with lawyer Nicole Phillips in California, but first she explains her connection with the people of Haiti. I'm a staff attorney at the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. Our sister organization in Port-au-Prince is the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux, International Lawyers Office, or BAI. So I'm, I'm based part of the year in our Port-au-Prince office, I'm also a law professor at the University of the Foundation of Dr. Aristide Unifa, which is based in Port-au-Prince, and also an adjunct law professor at University of California Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco, California. 
The first election, which was the first round of legislative elections, was on August 9th of last year. And, and those were not free and fair by any means. There has been documented incidents of widespread violence throughout the country and the closing of polling stations. Haitian human rights groups that had done electoral observation found that around half of the polling stations um, had some sort of irregularities, violence, or fraud. A number of polling stations had to be closed down because of these irregularities or, or violence. And so the, the results of those elections are not seen as legitimate. The international community recognized that there were significant irregularities and violence, as well as the Haitian government acknowledged that there had been problems. But both did certify these elections as good enough as fair and credible enough and moved forward, for the most part, with those results into the second round of legislative election, the exception where there was about a dozen or so seats that were rerun on October 25th, along with the first round of presidential elections. But other than that, it was sort of business as usual. And unfortunately, there, there also was not really a crackdown on the violence or any major investigation by the police on those incidences from the first round of elections. Is it known who the instigators were for those violations of the first round? Yes, in some cases it is known who the instigators of the violence were and to the extent that they were tied to a candidate, those, I think it's 14 or so candidates, were withdrawn from, disqualified from the election. There's other incidences where some investigation could sort of show more fully who was responsible. A lot of, I think there's a lot of evidence out there. The Electoral Council did do some type of a, a review and investigation and made an evaluation and a recommendation for the Haitian police to follow up. The last that I am aware, um, the Haitian police never did follow up on that report or on any of those recommendations for further investigation or arrest. What was the postponed election in January for? So the postponed election in January was for the second round of presidential elections, and there are a few seats for those legislative elections as well. And why were they postponed? Those elections were postponed. They were supposed to have taken place on December 27th. They've been postponed a few times. The reason for the postponement officially from the Haitian government was that it would have been too much of a security risk to go forward with those elections. Throughout the month of January, there have been protests in the streets of Port-au-Prince and throughout the country on a regular basis, almost daily basis. And what people are demanding for is, is free and fair elections. They've been stating that these elections will not be free and fair. One of the problems is that the, the opposition candidate, who was one of the finalists for this runoff election, refused to participate in the election. So Haitians dubbed this election Jovinel versus Jovinel, which is the only candidate that would have been running in that election and who is with the political party of the current president, Michel Martelly. Can you talk about the current situation in Haiti, why there is so much disquiet? There's a lot of problems in Haiti right now. You know, Haiti remains with a very high unemployment rate of over 60%. The currency, the Haitian good, has um, there's been huge inflation. It's you know, 20 to 30%. Um, higher than it was. Inflation is up. You know, because of global warming and other things, there has been a drought in Haiti. 
particularly in the countryside. As a result, farmers have had a difficult time producing food for the country. They call this dry season the hungry season. Malnutrition, unfortunately, is on the rise, and and people are, are literally hungry. While the government has been figuring out what to do with these elections, um, the Haitian people really have been suffering. There has been a lot of discontent. At the same time, they are frustrated with the international community's involvement in these elections, supporting this president, uh, Martelly, who has refused to have elections for most of his time in office since 2011, with the result that there's been no functioning parliament for well over a year due to term expiration. There's just been a lack of faith and frustration by, by the Haitian people. And where has that outside inf- interference come from? There is a, a core group, they call it, of, of different countries that includes the United States, members of the EU, Brazil, Canada. But the United States really is, is the leader in the core group. And this sort of intervention has taken a, a few different facets, one of which is that the U.S. government has has been supporting President Martelly very publicly. Secretary of State John Kerry came to Haiti a month or so before the elections, although that seems to, to, to be a violation of, of U.S. policy to, to visit political camp, you know, to visit a, a government right before the election. And also, President Martelly has been invited to, to the White House to meet with President Obama. What this does is emboldens the president against the opposition, strengthens him so that the opposition has diminished power against, just sort of one, one of the many ways. The U.S. government has also paid for the lion's share of these elections to the tune of $30 million. Um, and they are ultimately the evaluators of whether or not these elections are, are deemed credible enough to be legitimized and recognized. What's in it for the United States to support one party above the other? Well, and I'm not sure if, if the government is specifically supporting a party over the other, but they, they definitely want these, they're certainly trying to force an outcome to happen. They want these elections to happen as quickly as possible. I think they're trying to avoid some sort of long, drawn-out process. They want control. They want control of the candidate that comes in. And, and I think their interests are a few things. The United States government has a long history with Haiti. The U.S. government occupied Haiti over 100 years ago for about 15 years, starting in 1915. And there are over 10% of the population of Haiti, um, over a million Haitians living in the, in the United States. So relationships have always been close, as well as after the earthquake on um, January 12, 2010, the U.S. government pledged over $5 billion in earthquake recovery money for Haiti. So we have been very particular and have exercised quite a lot of control over their governance since the earthquake, but also before the earthquake, um, and are, are trying to have some control over how this humanitarian assistance money, this development money is spent. And what's in it for the other countries who are interfering in Haiti? great question. I think probably something similar. I think there are a lot of development funding for them that they're spending on this as well. In addition to that, I think that they are helping with the U.S. government since they are taking the leadership role in this. And Haiti's always been an interesting sort of example of a case. And keep in mind that it was the, the first free country to be born out of a slave revolt run by free slaves in 1804. And so it's had a very tricky 
and difficult relationship since that time with its quote-unquote former colonial country, France, and other former colonial countries like England, like, like other countries. So it, it's sort of this, this tricky relationship that has existed historically. Um, I think that legacy still still exists. Stemming back from the Cold War, of course, Haiti is very close to Cuba, and we know what great lengths the United States and its friends have gone to you know, quell socialist, left-leaning countries in favor of often dictatorial governments like the Duvaliers in Haiti in the middle of, of last century. What's the current relationship between Cuba and Haiti? Cuba provides quite a lot of medical assistance in the form of doctors and some other types of aid. There's a, a continual program of education for Haitian medical students, law students, there are these types of what they would call social, cultural, economic exchanges, educational exchanges with the country. Beyond that, in terms of political, I know they're friendly, but I'm, I'm, I'm not aware um, of anything beyond that. You spoke about the money that was promised after the devastating earthquake. Did all that money eventuate? Much of that money never did reach Haiti. There, there were a number of, of development projects. But for the U.S. government in particular, much of the, the $5 billion that the government pledged, if those projects did happen and if that money was spent, a, a fair majority of it, of it, well over 90% in some cases, went back into what they call beltway companies, went back into corporations that live in sort of the Washington, D.C. area that were running some of these projects, so going to pay for their expenses their labor costs. Very few of that money went through the Haitian government. The estimates are, are about 1% went through Haitian NGOs, Haitian businesses. And so as a result, what Haitians feel, and so these numbers do back that up, is that this development money, whether from the U.S. or from some of the other countries, mostly benefited U.S. interests and did not provide the, the jobs to Haitians that were promised, nor really benefited the Haitian economy in any way that made a difference to, to Haitians. And is it true that there, there are still many displaced people there and homeless people after that earthquake? Yes. I mean, it, it's complicated because Port-au-Prince certainly had a housing deficit before the earthquake. Um, and so after the earthquake, there remains a housing deficit. But there's also, in addition to that, which was several hundred thousand homes, I think it was about 200,000 homes deficit prior to the earthquake. After the earthquake, there still is that deficit. Um, it's even larger. But, but in addition to that, there are about 60,000, an estimated 60,000 people still living in internal displacement camps in and around Port-au-Prince area. And um, you know, I, I must say that those camps are absolutely abhorrent conditions with very few services, such as access to water or sanitation. The homes are, are not homes um, by any means are fit for humans, especially children. Most of us would, would not want our, our livestock or our, our pets to be in those in these homes, and this is where 60,000 people have been languishing, trying to create homes for six years now. When we last spoke, one of the issues was people being physically repatriated from the Dominican Republic, which is the other half of the island. Did that happen? Is it still happening? 
the repatriation of, of people of Haitian descent is still happening from the Dominican Republic. It sort of passes and ebbs and flows. There's been you know, estimates of, of thousands of people that have been formally repatriated by the government. In addition to that, there have been tens of thousands, I think the estimates are, are well over 60,000 people, that have what they would deem to be voluntarily relocated from the Dominican Republic back into Haiti. But upon further examination, when you speak with many of these people, what they'll say is they're, they're leaving because of threats, whether through violence, other types of discrimination against them in the Dominican Republic, or threats that they're hearing of other people in their community or acts of violence. So they are fearful and they have left. There are a couple of thousand of people who have not been able to really relocate into Haiti. Um, either they don't have family members, they don't have any funds to get into Haiti, and so they are stuck at the border, and they are living in displacement camps along the border. Most of them are families. Lots of them are, are families run by single mothers, which is very dangerous for them. Cholera has spread into some of these camps, and just the, the health concerns are enormous. There are very few services being provided to these individuals, so it really is sort of creating... Um, a humanitarian crisis, and we don't know for how long. And this could last. This could be the beginning of something that's going to last on the Haitian-Dominican border for, for many years. And the cholera you spoke about, that has its genesis after the earthquake, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And the earthquake was in January 2010, and cholera first came to Haiti in about October 2010. Scientific reports show that it was brought by a battalion of UN peacekeeping soldiers from Nepal. The bacteria links exactly to the bacteria infection that's endemic of cholera that's endemic in Nepal. The United Nations denied at the time and continues to deny any liability for this whatsoever or even that they were the cause of this, although it is widely known. So as a result, there's been very little effort made to try and prevent this disease from becoming endemic to the country, which it has. Well over 750,000 people have been reportedly sickened by this disease, and 9,000 people have died. We believe that these numbers are actually greater, but these are the official Haitian government statistics. What's the treatment? Well, the treatment is so simple. Treatment is water combined with salt and sugar and or antibiotics and rest and care. Um, and that's how simple it is to treat this. It's, it's even more simple to avoid this by drinking clean water and washing your, your food in clean water. Nobody should ever get this disease. That's why it's been eradicated in many parts all over the world. But in Haiti, sanitation facilities where the UN peacekeeping troops were based were poorly maintained and leaked and or were dumped into a tributary to the largest river in Haiti, the Archibald which is what is used by thousands and thousands of Haitians as their source of, of drinking water and as well as for cleaning and bathing, et cetera. And so as a result, it, it spread fast and furiously throughout the country. So the water hasn't been cleaned? The water appears to be still contaminated. There are um, thousands of new cases every year. So this is still an ongoing problem. It will not be eradicated until access to safe drinking water is provided, until so sanitation facilities are provided. You know, the United Nations has, has made some attempts to obtain funding for this. The estimate for that is about $2 billion. 
there's only been about 10% of that budget has been provided. And so Haitians remain without clean drinking water. There's a lot of a lot of frustration in Haiti. There's been attempts to, to hold the United Nations legally accountable since they're voluntarily not providing um, the help that Haitians need. A lawsuit was, was filed in New York District Court. Um, we're at the, the Second Circuit of Appeals in New York and, and um, awaiting um, some kind of a decision. But meanwhile, lots of advocacy efforts have been made. The special rapporteurs, experts on the right to health, on the right to water, an independent expert to Haiti, all UN officials have written a letter to the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon demanding for legal access to legal remedy for victims of cholera. Um, this is something that folks within, experts within the United Nations recognize that there is an injustice here and that justice does need to be provided by the UN, uh, who stands for human rights for everyone. But to this day, unfortunately, the Secretary General's office denies any any wrongdoing, even pr- provision of access to justice. The court case was filed because the UN refused to really respond to any sort of demands for justice. So we'll see what happens in the U.S. District Court at the, the Court of Appeals. It likely will go all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court if we don't win the, the circuit court. So it could drag on for years. This could drag on for years, yes. Meanwhile, Haitians continue to die of cholera. Perhaps some of those rich foundations in the United States could be pressured to put some money into this. This isn't a, a case really of lack of funds. There certainly is the money available. The United Nations allocates upwards at one point of up to a billion dollars right after the earthquake a year to pay for the U.N. peacekeeping troops that are in Haiti. Right now, that budget is at about a half a billion dollars a year. So so the money is being spent to militarize the country, even though there's no war there. and There's been no, no war there in any of our lifetimes. But the money's not being spent for clean water, even though that is itself killing thousands of Haitians. Can you talk a bit more about the militarization of the country? Well, the the UN peacekeeping troops have been in Haiti throughout the 90s, but this mission has been in since 2004 when, through the help of the assistance of the U.S. government and other members of the international community, President Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who was democratically elected, was taken out of office through a coup d'etat. And so the UN peacekeeping troops were sent, led by Brazil, in 2004 to, quote-unquote, secure a military government, coup government of, that was in, in power. Many Haitians think of this peacekeeping force as a foreign occupation by folks that it otherwise would be in solidarity with, right, countries throughout Latin America as well as the Far East. So that's one part of it. Another part of it is President Martelly has, through his campaign promises and then while in office, has tried to issue a decree, has done everything he can to militarize the country by sending in back the army, by resurrecting the army. The army was decommissioned by President Aristide in 1995 due to its uh, abuse of human rights and violence um, against Haitian people throughout the, the Duvalier dictatorship. And so this, President Martelly, that was one of the first things he wanted to bring back. Um, he hasn't been able to find the budget in order to bring them back, but there have been you know, over 100 or so voluntary army folks that have been practicing and meeting on their own. And what's sort of scary about this is that on Friday, what we saw, as we saw the Haitian government 
transitioning right now. President Martelli is stepped down on Sunday, and there's there's a huge transition. Um, you know, an accord has been a political accord has been reached by the current parliament, etc. As this was all happening, there were about a hundred or so members of this volunteer army that sort of stormed Port-au-Prince, went to a protest that were happening, and there were many of them were armed. They caused clashes with the protesters. One of them was stoned to death. I mean, it really is sort of adding fuel to the fire of what, what's happening now. I guess a third aspect of the militarization is President Martelli um, has put in a new form, a sort of Department of the Police, that is was, was ready just in time for the first round of elections. It did not secure the first round of elections. There was lots of violence, and the police stopped very little of it, if any, but it seems like their role is to call protesters who are for the right to vote who want fair elections, um, and that's sort of what they're for. So, so we're, there's a lot of fear on the ground in Haiti about this increased sort of militarization, and, 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 and they're seeing that now in, in protests. Is it also the fact that while people are going without in many aspects of life, that tourism is booming and resorts for the rich? Well, there's certainly a lot of plan for that. That was, I think, President Martelli's, one of his sort of follow suit like the Dominican Republic and create an economy based on tourism that has been somewhat successful to go to the Dominican Republic. I think because of the political instability and just general poverty and lack of infrastructure, basic things like electricity, access to water, et cetera, those plans weren't as successful as they wanted. There certainly are a few nice hotels and there are some tourists, but I think tourism is generally down as compared to a few decades ago, um, and, and it hasn't been brought up like the president wanted to. But you're absolutely right that Haitians are frustrated that, you know, there are some new hotels in Port-au-Prince. This is to attract the business investors. They are five-star hotels that if you were to go into New York City, sort of of that quality of hotel, which is just shocking when you are compared to what the average Haitian living on one to two dollars a day, sort of what their um, access to resources is. So it is certainly something that, that Haitians are frustrated by. Finally, looking to the future, the next round of elections, when are they going to be? And what confidence do the people have that they will ever have free and fair elections? Well, the elections right now provisionally are set for the end of April, Although, as we said, this, is, this date has changed a few times for elections, so nothing is certain. I think right now, based on the provisional plan that's come into agreement, you know, there's just not enough time to do any type of, nor if they've shown really a political will, to do an evaluation of the extent of the fraud from not only the October 25th election, but also the August 9th election. I think without that analysis, see how widespread it is and, and to see whether or not we need to redo both sets of elections. Going ahead without that will not satisfy Haitian people. I think one of the inherent problems with that is structural um, in that this current government that's planned, which is the, the parliament, there's about 75% of the parliament right now is in office. The rest still, their, their seats still need to be decided in this last round of elections. These um, parliamentarians came in based on the August 9th and October 25th elections, which are considered illegitimate by many Haitians. So therefore, it's a big question. And in fact, the opposition has questioned whether or not 
this legislature should be seated at all, have any power at all, and be controlling the analysis of whether or not to redo those elections that put them into office. So there's an inherent conflict of interest. This provisional solution may not be the solution. It'll be interesting to see what happens. And thanks to Nicole Phillips, who's a U.S. lawyer who spends half her time in Haiti and half in California and mainly working for justice and human rights for the people of Haiti. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And everything can change. There is concern that Malaysia is moving towards a state of totalitarianism. Late last year, Malaysia's federal court ruled that the 1948 Colonial Sedition Act was indeed constitutional. Just one caught up in this act is cartoonist Zuna, who faces a maximum 43-year jail term if he's found guilty of all counts relating to tweeting. In addition, the newly tabled National Security Council Bill allows for the suspension of police powers and for authorities to make arrests and conduct searches and seizing without warrants. And human rights activists are subjected to arbitrary arrest to intimidate and harass political dissent in Malaysia. Today we look at the past to understand the present. I'm speaking with Peter Boyle, the national co-convener of Socialist Alliance, who migrated to Australia with his family from Malaysia in the early 1970s. Peter, let's talk about the genesis of what we see in Malaysia today. We're seeing the, the ruling elite, which is really an elite that has been imposed on Malaysia ever since it gained its formal independence from Britain in 1957. We're seeing this ruling elite, the logic of this ruling elite, you know, trying to maintain itself in power by hook or by crook, you know, with more and more corruption coming to a head. It's bursting around the issue of corruption now, but it's all the more potent because Malaysia, like many other economies that are highly dependent on oil exports, is under huge pressure because of the, you know, the precipitous decline in the price of, of oil. So those two factors are putting the present government of Najib under intense pressure. And in order to stay in power, the Prime Minister Najib, in the face of escalating exposés about his own personal corruption, which probably is only a tip of the iceberg of overall government corruption, 
coming out in everything from the Wall Street Journal to New York Times, British Guardian, everywhere, all around the world. In the face of this, he's resorting to repressive actions. And see, this is the, the, the immediate context of uh, a rise of repressive ac- actions against the opposition. But of course, you know, you could say that there's a long history to this because the beginning of colonial intervention in the Malay Indonesian area from the beginning involved local elites being bought off by the colonial powers uh, to suit their, their needs. In fact, the entire modern history, if you like, of Malaya is about this. Yes, that's basically, you know, to sum it up, I think that's, that, that's what we're looking at. But there's also a long history of opposition to that, isn't there, right through the British rule, especially in yes, the later there has, years? There has been a long history, and I think not many people realise that Malaysia has a history of having a very powerful labour movement. Around the time of about uh, 1960, it was estimated by some historians that the level of trade union organization or membership um, density was about the 75 to 80% of the workforce. Now, this is very, very significant, especially in the context of the economy, the Malayan economy then, which was fundamentally built on the basis of two commodity exports, rubber and tea. Those two commodity exports were essential to the building up of British colonial power, military power in this period and the period of the two world wars that kept the economy going. But uh, both these economies were actually uh, based on the super exploitation of uh, labour, largely immigrant labour, often indentured labour. Uh, in the period uh, between the end of the Second World War and uh, in the 1960s, that workforce became very strongly organised and very militant. And this is a reason why, for a period 1948 to 1960s, there's what's called the Malayan emergencies. It's often presented simply as, a, you know, an insurgency that was started by the Malayan Communist Party. But the real story is that the colonial authorities and then the local elite, which they put into nominal power in 1957, attempted to crush a powerful labour movement in the country. And when I say in the country, at that time you have to bear in mind Malaya and Singapore, you know, they considered more or less one uh, political and economic unit. In order that they tried to repress that labour movement and effectively they forced the, the elements who were around the Malayan Communist Party to retreat into the jungle and attempt to defend themselves, you know, through a guerrilla struggle. The truth about that matter, you know, for a long period between the 1960s when the, when the height of the repression of the labour movement in Malaya and Singapore was being carried out, a more recent period, last few years, it was very, very hard to organise labour independently. Trade union movement currently in Malaya, you know, is estimated to have a really low density of about 9.4%, or maybe even less. It's dropped since then. 9.4% would have been maybe five years ago. It's probably dropped to about 7%. Nevertheless, there has been, on, on not necessarily at the level of trade unions, but on the level of more broadly organizing workers, there has been a bit of a rebound. For instance, in 
2014, there was a May Day march of about 30,000 strong May Day march, and there had never been a May Day march like that since the 1960s or early 1960s. That was the last time. Basically repressed. For all those decades in between the 1960s and 2014, you know, there were small groups of brave militants and leftists who would attempt to have a little march and then they'd be knocked back by the police. 2014, with 30,000 people out in the streets, the police couldn't do anything. And I think this was matched again, you know, with several thousand out in the street in 2015, focusing, you know, largely on issues like an introduction of a GST and also opposition to the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think there has been a bit of a kind of a comeback, though it's coming back not through, not being expressed through trade union organisations, highly constrained by existing laws. Just go back to 1957, you said they handed over nominal power, the Mm. British. What did you mean by that? Basically they selected the current ruling party, the core of the current ruling coalition is, organization called UMNO, United Malay National Organization. It was a a formation that was basically built by representatives of the Malay aristocracy in Malaya. This aristocracy composed of multiple sultanates had been basically working as the indirect rulers for the British for pretty much the previous century. This is very much like the model in in India. Every local sultan of each state in Malaya had what was called a British advisor. It was an advisor, a very powerful advisor, and basically called all the shots. Uh, The British supplied uh, the funds to build lavish palaces for these sultans, who previously were actually quite modest in, in their assets. They built up a system of Islamic schools to, to try and ideologically buttress the influences of the sultan. So basically, that layer, you know, has been working with the British colonial authorities for an entire century before, then was handed over power in the act of independence. And they've basically been in power ever since, 1957, despite the fact that in 2013 general election, the ruling parties in the ruling coalition, which is called the Barisan National National Front, actually received the minority of the popular vote. That is still through gerrymander and other means uh, rule. What about the Indian and Chinese population of Malaysia? How do they fit into this? Precisely because the former British colonial authorities picked this narrow layer that is a layer, uh, an organisation I'm now representing the Malay feudal aristocracy, it actually cast Malaysian politics in a sort of a racial sense. The Chinese and Indian populations were largely, in great majority, made up of indentured labour populations that had been brought in over the course of the previous decades before independence to work in the mines and in the rubber plantations. So these people, you know, these were people who who took the lowest of the low jobs precisely because, as I said, they were starting to get organized, starting to become militant. Uh, They were the targets of colonial repression. And then after 1957's targets of repression by the 
supposedly now independent federation of Malaya. Now, so you can see what's happened here. You've got a targeting of an organised labour movement with a significant ethnic caste. The British had, had always tried to keep the, the Malay section of the population confined to working the land. And there were many laws passed that made it hard for Malay peasants, small farmers, to get off the land, come into the city. It's really only in the last uh, two or three decades that almost absolute coincidence of class and race has begun to break down. And now you have a growing proportion of Malays entering to the cities, becoming part of the broader working class. This development actually has helped fuel the new opposition because the new opposition now is multi-racial, multi-ethnic in its composition and its politics. And in this sense, it's a total break. It's a total break from the highly racialized system that the British left behind. And did the British pull out of Malaysia in 1957 or did they oh, no, kept no. They, all... They, you know, they, they handed over power, but the, you know, there was a full-on military intervention going on to repress the Malayan Communist Party by that time presented as guerrilla insurgency. And it wasn't just the British. It was Australians uh, as well. There, Australians were in there as well. And this was a, a big war. Many things that later on we see replicated in, say, the Vietnam War. For instance, strategic hamleting, where entire local communities basically put into prison camps, if you like. The whole village is sort of like uh, locked in every night. After you come back from work, you, you, you're locked in, you're checked off, you're not allowed to take food out. That sort of counterinsurgency tactic was actually developed as part of this repression of lane insurgency. Even today, you have entire communities. You, you know, you travel through rural Malaysia and you will see a community called the New Village of XXX. New Village is, is the name they gave for these detention, these strategic hamlets of detention, basically imprisoned villages. It's left its mark on politics in a big way. I should say there's one other element which is an interesting element of the modern Malaysian labour force. And that is about 20% of the labor force is now prized of migrant laborers. And about half of that layer is what technically has been labeled undocumented labor. So you have a big, this is one of the countries that, you know, in Australia, people, some people grumble about refugees coming in, taking jobs, etc. Out there in the, in the third world, there are many countries, and Asia is one of them, where the scale of this issue of global refugees and its impact on society is, is on a level, completely different level. So 20% you know, of the labor force now is basically migrant labor, and many of them, or at least half of them, because of their undocumented status, are facing extreme super-exploitation. They're not paid even the pathetic minimum wages that do exist now. They are often kept in a situation of complete fear and uh, sometimes even imprisonment by employers. They are the subject of official extortion, bribes, pay this money, or we will take you back to the border, say, of Malaysia and, and Thailand, where you may end up in one of the mass graves 
of refugees that have been discovered there. That's the sort of stuff that's going on now. It, it is an issue that, that does divide the Malayan labour force and also makes it difficult to organise through their traditional means of trade unions. And this is where the Australian government a number of years ago wanted to send refugees back yeah, to camps it's, it's, in Malaysia. It's bizarre. It's, it's a concept. <laughs> the idea that of Australia, rich Australia, trying to offload the tiny numbers of asylum seekers and refugees that get to shows onto a country of Mal- like Malaysia where 20% of the workforce already migrant labour and half of that is actually basically refugee labour in an undocumented situation. It is just completely... Yeah, it's morally untenable and, I mean, it's just practically ridiculous. Peter, you spent your early years in Malaysia. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I spent the first 17 years of my life in Malaya, so... You know, that period, I grew up as a little boy, you know, during the period of the counterinsurgency war. And while I was not living in a part of the country which was uh, on the front line, my family did travel through quite a bit. And, you know, so I I do have recollections of, you know, the the militarization of the country, the searches. I remember as a five-year-old having a, a plastic toy gun confiscated from me at a military checkpoint. And you can imagine my outrage as a child, not being able to carry, you know, more than enough food, you know, for one meal when you were travelling through large areas of the country, just in case that you, just in case you were somehow using the food to supply the guerrillas. Having the uh, military, the, the air force planes flying across the sky, dropping leaflets, trying to get the uh, guerrillas to surrender. Sometimes these planes would have loud speakers on them and they'd boom out, you know, messages into the jungle. So, you know, it, it was a period of, of great, um, yeah, it was a great period of great turmoil then. But, you know, and, and in the end, you know, you could say the colonial authorities and the rulers they put into place, you know, may have won that war. But the labor movement never goes away because that's about the system they do need people to do the work and uh, I think part of the story uh, since 2007 which you know from 2007 to now we have seen a, a rebuilding of opposition in Malaysia political opposition part of the story you know is the story of the the labor movement being you know persisting and trying to find a way to express its interests and its power But what is the big issue for the people of Malaysia is free and fair elections. And unless and until you have that, Omno will stay. Yes, well, you know, from purely the electoral point of view, free and fair elections is is probably the most uniting demand. And it's, it's all the more uniting after the 2013 general election, which is widely called the, the, the stolen elections. Malaysia because precisely because the popular majority and to the opposition parties and nevertheless the government maintained its you know significant majority of seats in the parliament so there needs to be electoral reform but um, the movement now you know has other fronts has to fight on basic civil liberties despite uh, promises to 
to actually remove some of the uh, uh, repressive laws that were inherited from colonial administration, such as sedition laws, the laws to detain people without trial. These have sort of come back, sometimes in slightly different formats, but they have returned. And in particular, over the last 12 months, the Malaysian government has been using sedition laws and the um, laws uh, laws on broadcasts to, um, to arrest and detain and harass members of the opposition. These days, you know, often for posting something on Facebook or tweeting something, there are court cases all lined up now. Numerous numbers, members of the opposition parties are actually facing uh, these charges. So a big part of the, the battle now is for the repeal of the sedition of, of the sedition act and for the the end of the, uh, the the powers that give the police the the capacity to detain people without trial i did read that one cartoonist i think is facing 43 years in jail the potential yes potential cartoonist zuna who's mm. who's, who's been to australia and actually been his case has been taken up very strongly by amnesty international by Human Rights Watch and numerous overseas bodies. Zuna is an unrepentant political and an independent political cartoonist, and uh, they keep charging him. Looking to the next couple of years. Personally, I believe that the current wave of repression is also an expression of the precariousness and the weakness of the Malaysian government. I think this is a government that can be toppled over the next few years. It's resorting to all this, this lashing out with repression because it feels its vulnerability. Fundamentally, it has lost one thing, which uh, the, the elite that was conferred power by the colonial authorities, you know, its main strength was that it had, it was able to dominate and counter on majority support from the Malay, the ethnic Malay community. That is in jeopardy. That, that's what has really, really changed. More and more members of the Malay community are not going to say, you know, our lot is with UMNO and uh, the coalition it manages to pull around them. That's broken. And with that, there's great hope. There's a hope that Malaysia can escape the horrors of the racialization of its politics in the future, in the near future. Thank you very much, Peter. And that was Peter Boyle. And on the program next week, I'm hoping to speak with a young activist who was part of a delegation who went to Malaysia last month. On the program last week, Buddy Bell, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, spoke about his visit to Jeju, an island off the southern coast of South Korea, where the government is constructing a controversial military base which will be an outpost for the US Navy to project its power against China. On leaving Jeju, Buddy travelled to Okinawa, the southernmost prefecture of Japan, consisting of a few dozen small islands in the South China Sea between Taiwan and the Japanese mainland where the struggle against US military bases has been ongoing since the end of World War II. I asked him to detail the history of that struggle. 
Well, Okinawa, as well as several other islands in a whole chain that's called the Ryukyu Island, that whole area was colonized by Japan during the 17th century and then annexed in around 1870. And during the years of World War II, the U.S. tried to land on Okinawa, even though it was clear that Japan would eventually lose the war. Japan decided to keep fighting the U.S. and as a result, there was about a quarter of the population of Okinawa that died in the fighting when the U.S. raided Okinawa. So that's part of their history. Their Okinawa and Japan have that uh, sordid history. And as well, uh, as the U.S. forces were coming onto the island, Japanese soldiers from the main islands of Japan would be telling the Okinawans that if they surrender, they will be killed, and actually there were mass suicides in caves of people who believed that this was the case. So people on Okinawa have also a struggle against the main Japanese federal government ever since then. And as the U.S. came in and set up permanent bases on Okinawa, several of the struggles that Okinawans have had to put up with were uh, contamination of the island water, contamination of the land. So the U.S. used many of the, the bases on Okinawa as practice ranges to practice with live ammunition and the casings from some of these uh, weapons that were practiced with uh, ended up polluting the land and as well there's been water pollution right up to the present day when they just found out that Kadena Air Force Base on Okinawa had been leaking a chemical found mostly in jet fuel um, that was the Okinawa prefectural government had banned from their island. Um, so this was recently found in one of the rivers that they use on the main, actually the capital city, Naha, uses for some of their water intake. In addition to that, Okinawans also have to put up with the fact that soldiers who come out of their base over the years have committed crimes and been able to go back to the base and stay on base and uh, evade answering to their crimes in Japanese courts. And this can range from any petty offense to some of the most serious things, manslaughter or rape of people in Okinawa. The history of the U.S. stance on this issue is that they will always protect soldier in the base and they will not allow the Japanese courts to have jurisdiction over this case. They will do their own investigation and if they decide to reprimand the soldier, then their sentence will be carried out on the base or they will be taken to another U.S. brig serve their time. And this is a great thing that Okinawans greatly resent. Also, you have the Futenma Air Base, uh, which is one of the most dangerous airports in the world. Several plane crashes have resulted in deaths, including one plane that crashed into a college maybe a decade ago. The worst incident was around 1970 when a plane was veering off course. The pilot lost control. The pilot actually ejected out of the plane. The plane, uh, without a pilot, crashed into a small town and actually bounced 
and hit a elementary school, and many of the students at the elementary school were killed. So there's safety issues, and now with new Osprey helicopter, many of the people who demonstrate against U.S. bases on Okinawa also demonstrate against the use of an Osprey helicopter, which just recently the uh, U.S. Navy Safety Center came out with a study that between 2010 and 2012 in Afghanistan, these Osprey helicopters had one accident per 90 hours of flight time. And uh, the average of safety statistics for aircraft is one in 3,700 hours, one accident in 3,700 hours. So these Osprey aircraft are extremely dangerous, and these are being used and practiced with over uh, major cities in Okinawa. About 17% of Okinawa's land is taken up by U.S. air bases. So these are lands that were taken by force when the U.S. came to Okinawa in the course of World War II. And several of these lands were farmlands. The people who had been farming these lands were pushed off. They were not compensated. In some cases, the U.S. sent people that to go and say they were surveyors and go and survey the land. They gave the farmers a piece of paper to sign to say that they give permission to survey the land for, as a free service. And then the farmers found out that they sold the deed to their land because these documents were not in Japanese, they were in English. This resulted in a major march that occurred from the top of Okinawa, the north side, to the south. And many farmers who had their land taken away were part of this march. And the U.S. general at the time did the same thing that they said in uh, Jeju Island. They said he thinks these people are communist conspirators. And now, every year, there's actually a Buddhist order which reenacts this march and basically tries to walk in every city and town in Okinawa, going from the north end to the south end. This is actually the order that invited me to come along, take footage of some of the protests that are happening in Okinawa. How did that go? How long was the walk? It was 10 days. Okinawa is about 70 miles long. There's about 32 facilities on the island. We stopped at quite a lot of them and actually had a small protest at each base. I and a couple other people who spoke English actually did talk and address the soldiers inside the base, although the soldiers didn't respond. We didn't expect them to. It isn't really their freedom to sort of express uh, their reaction to any protesters. But um, we had tried to, or I had tried to, give a short spiel about how we, as U.S. people, we shouldn't have 800 bases around the world and 200 bases as an aggregate between Japan and Korea. About 200 bases are surrounding the East China Sea. They are actually an encirclement of China. And instead of having this aggressive stance, we could instead uh, close the bases, save a lot of money, not inspire enemies around the world, but instead try to foster friendly relationships, friendly trade relationships with China and um, with the people that we're supposed to be viewing as the end. So 
many soldiers would wave at us, or they would they uh, they would put their thumbs down if they didn't agree. But um, they weren't really allowed to engage us. We went to quite a bit of uh, Japanese army bases as well, and some of the Japanese folks talked there. And they're actually building new heliports. Where are they? Probably many heliports being built, um, but there are some contentious ones being built uh, on the Northern Jungle Warfare Training Center, which is one of the only jungle warfare training centers the U.S. has. In the north side of Okinawa, which is quite a bit less populated than the south, as part of an agreement to cut in half the land area that the U.S. is actually occupying up there, they are increasing the amount of helipads and, as a result, the amount of training that they're going to be doing with aircraft. There are some small villages up there, including one called Sakai, which is going to be completely surrounded by these new helipads as well as a few old ones. But there's four new ones being built in that area. And so when aircraft are going from helipad to helipad, they'll be going right over the town. And this town called Sakai has a history that during the Vietnam War, the U.S. actually forcefully conscripted villagers to leave their village, come to sort of a theatrical village that the U.S. Army had constructed and dress like Vietnamese people, go about their business gardening and things like this while the U.S. soldiers would train using their village as simulation of what they would be finding in Vietnam. So the people of Sakai have reason to be suspicious of the U.S. motive in putting these four new helipads around their village. This is going to be most likely another reenactment of the 1970s where the U.S. is looking at real Japanese or Okinawan towns and using them without their consent as simulated enemy targets. So that is the fear of the people in Takai who also have a permanent protest where they're camped out in front of a service road that leads to one of the construction sites of one of these helipads, two of these helipads. And they maintain that protest 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They had been moved forcefully from an old site where the helipads are now completed. Where they are now, there's two more being built. They haven't actually been fronted yet by the Japanese defense contractors who will be trying to get in eventually. Finally, Buddy, do the people of Jeju and Okinawa feel that the the world's forgotten them and that they're fighting these battles on their own? And that's why they welcome people such as yourself coming to witness what is happening. They definitely do want people from other countries to come and visit, to come and support. And that's what I tried to do when I went. It isn't very common in the U.S. discourse, at least, to be talking about Navy bases being built on Jeju Island, being expanded in Okinawa, in the case of Hinoko, which has had a daily protest in which every day there's probably at least 80 people who lay down in front of the driveway to the construction site and don't move until they're forcefully moved by police officers. And this wasn't happening 
at the time uh, that I was in Okinawa until the very end when Governor Onaga's decree against continued construction was overruled and the next day they started construction again. The protest started again and that's how I was able to collect footage of all this and people can see that um, if they go to YouTube and search for Okinawa peace protest, you can see what happens every day at Hinoko Gate. This is going on every day and yet it isn't too much talked about or um, witnessed. And so I hope that through my trip and my short video that I can inspire people to think about this issue and also if they so choose to go to Okinawa, go to Jeju Island and support these movements because um, the folks there, as long as people are humble and don't try to take over their protests in any way. They're very welcoming and very appreciative of the increased press exposure or the increased um, attention that they can get and they need all they can get. Thanks very much for spending time. You're welcome and thank you for covering this issue. And that YouTube site is Okinawa Peace Project and that was Buddy Bell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Coming up in a moment, Ronnie leaving 3CR. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Roni Kareni has been Current Affairs Coordinator here at 3CR since 2014 and is leaving soon to continue his studies at Canberra University. Roni was in Australia for a number of years before joining 3CR, first as a programmer with the West Papua program Voice of West Papua, then as a staff member. I asked him first about his journey from West Papua to Australia. The journey from West Papua to Australia is a remarkable journey where it comes with the vision from West Papuan leaders at the time when the armed struggle is leading to lots of bloodshed and looking at the non-violent struggle as a way forward and also engaging students and women and youths. And so in 2000, there was a workshops around how to build a non-violent movement in West Papua and so there was a lot of this clandestine meetings happening along the border and also into Papua New Guinea in WIWAC, where it is a stronghold of that, lots of those meetings. And that is where I grew up in WIWAC, north coast of Papua New Guinea. And between 2000 and 2002, there were discussion of bringing students abroad. That was through Jacob Rumbiak, who is now the Foreign Affairs Minister of the Federal Republic of West Papua, and also a key representative of the United Front called United Liberation Movement for West Papua. And that was through his vision and wanting to bring those students. And I was lucky, very lucky enough to be one of the six students to be selected and come and study in Australia and especially in Ballarat. So I settled in Ballarat for a number of years pretty much five years. I have to redo my year 11 and 12 and then continued 
to University of Ballarat, which is now Federation University. Did students go to other countries apart from Australia? No, at that time it was very difficult to get West Papuans to study abroad. And unless you have a network and support group around, yes, that's where they can go out and study in other places. And usually it comes down if there is some bright West Papuan students who, you know, their academic reports are very good, then they have those opportunity, and it's very rare to get that. As far as I know, there was late... Dr. Thomas Weingai in the mid-80s. He got a scholarship to study in U.S. And also late Arnold Hub, who is another um, known musicologist in West Papua, came and studied at ANU. Did went back again, but there, then he died in prison from a mysterious death. Was the network the Catholic Church? Yes, coming here through the network of um, Catholic Church. And that network was basically built upon the support around Istimo at that time through Bishop Bello. At that time, Ballarat had a very close connection in Timor with Ainaro region there. And also the connection that Jacob has with Zanana Guzmao. They spent a number of years together. And so... Jacob was under house arrest and he was given permission to go and observe the referendum in 99 by Zanana. When he arrived there, the violence broke out and he was advised by Jose Ramos Hota at that time to come to Australia and seek asylum. And also at that time, West Papuan diplomats are not really raising the issue and so they need new young bloods to come out through and um, to carry on their diplomatic work. And so that was that connection that the Catholic churches, the schools and the support groups met Jacob and then that's when the support to bring students out came up and the Sisters of Mercy in Ballarat were very happy to auspice the six of us, the students, through our education and also living expenses for the number of years and from there after six months, every time we have to do lots of fundraising events to just to, um, to raise money for our transport fees and um, just, yeah, um, the daily living. So it was the f- tough in the first few months. We didn't get any allowance. Basically, um, there'll be a lot of events or community fundraising events. That So we every weekend we have something that we have to do. So music and singing and dancing was a lot incorporated at that time. And it was really good. That makes me also realizing that the, the cultural identity and how to maintain or sustain our music through the songs came much alive. And that was how I kind of like continuing that journey of um, using music as a tool to raise the awareness as well. The political education developed when we going out there and using music and sharing the songs, and a lot of the songs as well are collected and written in various different languages around West Papua, given these over 300 dialects, and it's not easy to communicate, but through the music, it really brings us together in the spirit of nationalism. And that's how I personally learn the language and also understand the words behind the music and use that to rephrase and educate the people. And it helps me to be educated as well in learning 
about the history and the culture and how to sustain that, the legacies that have already came before me and how we can continue to um, use music. And then that political development came through by studying as well, doing my Bachelor of Arts at Ballarat University and doing few assignments. Then I pick up the topic on West Papua, and that helps in understanding how West Papua is really entangled in the global neoliberalism and also the histories that took place, which West Papua is, is a victim to the global events that are happening in the 60s and leading up till present day. And what was your political activities once you left university? I still study, and basically the activism takes over the music and um, organizing various different uh, actions around um, here in Melbourne and being asked to come down. So at that time, I, I was still up in Ballarat. And so the influence in activism kind of like takes over, and so I didn't really focus on to complete my study. On top of that, things are happening when I started come out publicly in um, using music, and we established a band group called Tabura, and then it went into a, a, a movement called Rise of the Morning Star, and then that's one, and then also doing public speaking here and there in those early days in 2009, 10, 11. Then my family back in Papua New Guinea, especially my mom and dad, are facing problems um, with locals coming in and throwing stones, and they were forced to move from the shelter that, you know, would have lived there for over 19, 20 years. And I didn't make any connections with all of those things that are happening. Three times they were forcefully removed by the local police, and then threats were made against mom and dad, until 2011 when dad was imprisoned. It was over six months. So all of these things kind of like take me focus away from uni. And the more when I realized that my engagement in Australia became more public, the, the impacts of it is my family getting, like being affected through that. As I said, I didn't make that connection up until my dad was imprisoned. And then I just draw myself back a bit more in terms of being too outrageous and in a public um, demonstration and attending various um, forums here and there. I realized that maybe I need to pull back a bit and just to balance things out a bit and because I was young and very passionate and really want to go really hard in terms of the campaign. Yeah, just coming back and pulling myself back and really being really strategic in what I do. And that helps me through that process in continue to do what I still do, but balancing things out a bit. When did you make the decision to try for a position here at 3CR? And what was the impetus for that? The impetus for the coming to, uh, to 3CR, it started off with the connection between Dr. Joe Toscano and Jacob Rumbiak, and that was through the Eureka Memorial in Ballarat. It's every 3rd of December. And so 2010, there were a few of us West Papuans invited by Dr. Joe Toscano and John, who's based up in Ballarat, really wants to bring in West Papua as well into the spirit of Eureka Rebellion. That was that early connection, and they realized that 
West Papua hasn't got a platform to advocate through um, their campaigns. And so the first advice to is to have a West Papuan show here at Tricia. So end of that year, in, in 2011, we put an application to do a show here at Tricia, and that's the first stages of our West Papuans have a, a show here. It's every Monday, 6.30. I was still based in Ballarat, so I usually don't come down often. But then there's a need for me to come and also help out at the station with the program itself. So I have to make the decision to move down and then join the other West Papuan programmers. That was 2011 till um, there was a job open, arises here at, for current affairs position. And I just close my eye and just give it a go. What did you believe you could contribute? Over the course of being a programmer, um, one, I learned a lot about um, doing other projects as well and using the multi-tracking. That was a um, project that um, on refugees and it was on Human Rights Day. So it was a great opportunity to be able to be part of that. Also, I'm just teaching myself on using the all the equipments that are here at the station. Also, the outside broadcast is one thing that I also uh, kind of like really interested in doing the live broadcast outside. And that was one of my really, yeah, thing that I really interested to engage in that. And also just the overall general skills in programming that has kind of like led me to believe that I could, you know, give it a go and, you know, they can say yes or no. And they said yes. Yes. So that was um, in 2014, early in the year in May. So I started the role as a current affairs coordinator. And it was really a a great experience where all these times I've been really so focused on just one issue, like on West Papua issue, human rights and environmental issues in West Papua. But this time when taking on this role, it has broadened my knowledge across various issues. And that has really teached me a lot as well in terms of issues that are interconnected and the stories are similar. And it's how we we work together and supporting those various people who are on the front line in their campaigns and giving them that opportunity on the airtime. And that is really a great experience. And I really value the time that I, you know, in this pretty much between 2014 and now early 2016 to be able to have that opportunity in doing that role. And I, and everyone, especially the staff, are really great in the support through that transition as well when I first started doing that role. And one one of my highlights of the job is um, at the end of 2014, and, um, and I was part of the Tricia team, organizing a outside broadcast during the G20 and we did Tricia especially set up at uh, Musgrave Park working alongside with the First Nation mob there and doing the live broadcast for nearly two weeks and that was really a blessing and um, personally it was a, a big highlight for me of how community radio such as Tricia is very much valued in its work and the programmers and volunteers who put their time and effort. And also organising the Peace Flotilla? Yes, that was prior to the uh, taking on the role. 2013, the Freedom Flotilla, it was an, a big campaign that we... God, it doesn't we, seem that long ago. Yeah, true. 
It doesn't seem that long, but one thing that I really um, inspired of that is that connect the land and the people of this land in Australia and also in Papua New Guinea, in West Papua and Papua New Guinea as well. And that cultural connection is something that I felt that it's been lost for a long time. And it's important in this day and age where we tap into various issues with climate change, understanding the, those impacts. But the indigenous people are the most affected people on the planet that, that needs to you know, unite and um, join hands together. And that Freedom Flotilla has really somehow highlighted that. And after this journey, after my role here at Tricia, then I will put another 100% effort and we will make another Freedom Flotilla. It's you spoke before about the pressure on your family back in Papua New Guinea because of your activities. Do you have to watch your back here in Melbourne? Yes, it is an everyday, like I live with it, of um, threatening messages that people following you. And if I'm away, example of that during the Freedom Flotilla, uh, my wife, Sixta, was closely monitored and followed every afternoon. And it just drive her to crazy. She even got phone calls and in asking about where I am because she grew up. Her father was also a, a political prisoner back then and growing up in the family where if you both your parents or one of your parents involved in the West Papuan movement, everyone's scared to come close to you because then they'll be also affected through intimidation. And so... In Sixtus words is that they were seen as a virus, that people scared to get close to their family. So that was really hard for her growing up and with those memories. And so coming here and living here and being followed as well, that's for her, it's, it's part of um, the existence of being a West Papuan. Even engage more direct action with West, like campaigns or if I'm engaged in a project focused on West Papua, I have no doubt that I always expect that I'll give them three days, then I will receive a, an SMS. And that's always true. If in a week's time, then there's an SMS that comes through on my phone from Telstra Pay phone or from my mobile number that I should get out from that project. Or if not, my actions will be paid by my family. And it, they always, the wording is just family. Latest um, one was that came through was in October last year. Their aim is to monitor the activists and the supporters and also looking at West Papua's weakness, especially the activists, their weakness and utilising that to undermine the campaign. Just wondering what happened to the other five who came here with you in 2003. The other five, Erwin Sixta, my wife. Erwin is, is a programmer here at Tricia. And there is other three, Ricard, who is studying theology. Hain is another guy. He's based here in Melbourne, a singer. And he occasionally do travel with David Brady through One Talk Music Singsing Group. And another sister, she's now based in Western Australia, Perth. And the 40-something who arrived here in 2006... That upset the Indonesians greatly, didn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Big time. Eight months, the Indonesian ambassador was recalled back and 
And Australia have to sign a treaty, which the Lombok Treaty came about, and that's where normal um, diplomacy continues. The arrival of the 43, the asylum seekers, one, it, re- it brings back the issue of West Papua alive. Amongst West Papuans, the older generation, and secondly, it internationalized the issue as well. And here in Australia, create tension between Jakarta and Canberra. That is where the, it brings everything back again to life. And that is going back in the in early 2000, where before the six students arrive, this was also part of the strategy back in the early days. And so that was amazing that um, this issue is now gaining a lot more support. The momentum is building. And like Herman Weingai, who is now based in U.S., Benny Wenda now in U.K. and myself here, we are the outcome of this division that was first discovered through the clandestine movement in early 2000. And also the support in the Melanesian countries and the South Pacific Yes, the tide has changed in recently, and when we see they will, um, the West Papuans really organize ourselves through the leadership and have a united front, that has really changed the support through the Melanesian Spirit Group and Solomon Island has really championed West Papua to, to become a member as an observer pretty much there, and feathering into there is to have West Papua at the PIF, the Pacific Island Forum, late last year. So there was a big support, and we've seen this more wave of support on the issue, and that has threatened Indonesia big time. And we've heard that the Foreign Affairs Minister and Defence Minister of Indonesia came and met with their counterparts here in Australia on December 2015, Basically, the defense minister say that Indonesia has never disrupted or caused any problems with another country, so he's making it clear that Australia and the regional countries should not disrupt Indonesia's sovereignty over West Papua. But that's the big issue, isn't it? Indonesian sovereignty, how they got it. That's exactly, that's the big issue here. And given with the fraud referendum in 69 and two years prior to that, the mining giant Freeport Sulphur at that time already signed a contract to mine in the area there. And it goes back in time as well in 39 when they discovered the wealth of resources in West Papua. And the rest is just calculation to how to grab hold of West Papua by using Indonesia as a stepping stone. And I'm saying the U.S. and Australia at that time. And that's how they claim that sovereignty over West Papua was basically, it's, it's fraud. Well, getting back to you, you're leaving soon. What are your plans? My plans is to continue to study, really focus in, and to continue my um, looking in the area of Asia and Pacific region and West Papua in that bi- in that bigger picture. And so that is where um, I'll be focused and moving and studying at Canberra, ANU, and I'm so looking forward for that. It's going to be a big challenge for me, just the relocating and the place, but I'm used to it. I can adapt anywhere. It is great that I'll be going to do that. I'll be missing the community here, 
the, the radio station here and everyone, but on a strategic focus, that is a good move for West Papua. And what do you believe are the main things that you've learned over these years? A lot of things that I've learned over the course of a um, number of years here in, at the station here. It's very diverse, but um, the, key, the highlight ones are how the people-powered radio here works with various diverse communities and giving a platform for a community like my community, the West Papuans, to have a voice here and coming in every week to share the stories. It is a big, big thing for us as West Papuans. And on that note as well, it's the skills that you share amongst the friends here at the station and it's amazing the skill sharing here where you can help someone and someone will help you on using the cool edit or the din- dinner set or just the the general support in the area and it's great i remember going back when um the first little girl was born the support from the station everyone had the roaster that they came to um, drop in food and that means a lot for me and Sixta at that time that the love here at Tricia is so immense, it's so big and anyone comes through here feel like it's home and that's what I felt over the number of years here apart from programmer and also a staff member here but the, the positive vibe of family is very much alive here. And that's one thing that I, I learn a lot. And coming from a very communal society, Tricia is the place to be and um, hang around here. And sometimes I always work till, you know, my normal hours. But then I, because of the love around the f- people here, I always kind of like stay another couple of hours. Just another family. Yes. <laughs> and that's Ronnie Karenia. And best of luck to Ronnie and his family in Canberra. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next week at four. Bye for now.